Hey y'all and welcome to the Source Code Podcast. This is the second episode of the second season. My name's Chris Sanders and I think we have another really great guest lined up for you today. I brought in my friend Rick Holland. Now you may know Rick from his current work as head of strategy for Digital Shadows or maybe from his previous work as an analyst for Forrester interfacing with people looking to bolster their cybersecurity programs and the vendors who provide those solutions. Um, as well, you may have seen one of Rick's many presentations specifically focused on threat intel. Now, Rick's a Texan, and of course, as a Texan, he has strong barbecue opinions. So right off the bat, we're going to talk a little bit of barbecue. I try to withhold some of my uh, uh, Kentucky and South Carolina and Georgia-based biases and let him talk about what barbecue is like in Texas, because I think that's where his unique perspective lies. So if you like barbecue, you'll really enjoy that part of the, uh, that part of the show. From there, we talk about Rick's progression through his life, how he was as a student, uh, his time in the Army, and what he learned from, from serving in the military. Uh, and then we talk specifically quite a bit about his time at Forrester and about how analyst firms work. I think that's something a lot of people don't fully understand. And I ask him some pretty pointed questions. Uh, specifically, are analyst firms pay to play? Do you have to pay as a vendor to get your product rated highly? And I think the answers and where the conversation went will surprise you a little bit. So we talk about that uh, and then, of course, progress to his time now uh, at Digital Shadow. So I think it was a really great conversation. I think you'll really enjoy what Rick has to say. Without further ado, I'm now joined by my good friend from deep in the heart of Texas, Rick Holland. Rick, how are you, sir? I'm great. It's good to be with you, Chris. Good deal. Now, before we get started, I know you are the Vice President of Strategy for Digital Shadows. Tell me what that means and what Digital Shadows does. Yeah, I've been at Digital Shadows for coming up on two years in January since I left the analyst world, which is kind of crazy to think about uh, time flying. But essentially, what we do is help customers understand the risks beyond their firewall. So everyone's been focused on largely their firewall, starting to get on the inside. We're looking beyond the firewall. So this could be threat actors that are targeting an organization. That's where our threat intel components come into play. It could be people spoofing CEO's brand. It could be people that have set up domain squats to fish their uh, fish employees to a you know login credential sort of thing. So really any of the risks beyond the perimeter, data leakage, things like that, those are the things that, that we help clients find and remediate. Good deal. Now, I want to start right off the bat. I'm a big fan of giving the people what they want. I think the people want to hear <laughs> us talk about barbecue. Um, now, you're, you're a Texas guy, um, and you know I have strong feelings about what is good barbecue and what's bad barbecue, but I want you to make the case, and I want you to tell me why Texas barbecue is the best barbecue in the world. Well, I mean, I'll take a little different approach. I am an equal opportunity carnivore. So I actually like to eat whatever the regional meat, well, not just meat, but we're talking meat now for sure, um, is. So uh, I do love uh, Texas barbecue. Um, you and I have talked about this on Twitter before with the sauces. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think I would fall into the sauce snob. I will try bar barbecue sauce, but I like to have the meat first by itself. So you get the meat with the rub. Um, although I will appreciate, you know, pork sandwich in the southeast with some with some sauce on it. But really, I do prefer to at least try the meat without barbecue sauce first. Actually, I never have barbecue sauce on Texas barbecue, but if I'm in other places, I will. Um, so that's probably the biggest thing for me is I like to enjoy all of the effort that went into preparing that meat. 
the rub that went on the meat, the different contrast of sweet and savory that goes into rubs and things like that. And then have a little bit of barbecue sauce, but that's not the main course for me. That's an accompaniment. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess in a lot of places in Texas, they don't even offer it. I know I've been uh, not so much to Dallas, but I've been in and around Austin a lot. And you, know, you get that really great brisket and maybe some beef ribs and stuff like that. And, and a lot of them don't have sauce. Or if they do, I think it's just for profiling purposes. They wait for people to ask for it and then kind of give them the side eye or something like that. Yeah, I think the places that do, especially if it's like a, a, a central Texas type of barbecue um, in particular, they also don't, a lot of them historically don't have have forks knives you eat with your hands um so but you will see a lot of the barbecue place up here in dallas uh will have it available but i think that's just because people expect it to be there um you know it, i think it'd be weird for many of the consumers that are coming in um that aren't barbecue snobs um uh, that, that would want to try that and, and like i say i do try it out there but yeah many places it's just pretty typical butcher block paper eat with your hands no sauce yeah, uh, well, I, I, I mean, you have to have the silver, I guess, because otherwise it's like having a sushi place with only chopsticks. Like, people can kind of figure it out, but it's going to be weird to them, and you're, <laughs> you're going to run off the non-locals, maybe. Yeah, exactly. So if, if so for the folks who have never been to Texas, and they're coming to Texas, and they want to try real barbecue, your recommendation to them would be, what, brisket? Is that that's the thing? Yeah, if you come to Texas, in fact, I'll see this, because uh, it's interesting, when, uh, when I moved to Digital Shadows, we opened up an office in Dallas proper, where I live out in the Burbs, and so now... I'm much closer to the top places in Dallas. And when I'm, when I'm in the line for a lot of them, if you want to get a beef rib or if you want to get burn ends, uh, you have to get there early. Um, and so there'll be a lot of out of towners that are, you know, barbecue tourism, barbecue tourism is a real thing. And I was like, you, for Texas, you got to have beef brisket. Um, it could be also with burn ins, also, um, uh, beef ribs, which I actually just did beef ribs at home on Sunday. Um, and then also Texas, because especially with central Texas, a lot of uh, German immigrants. So we also do a lot of sausage. So you'll have beef sausage as well. And then you'll also have pork sausage or a beef and pork combo sausage. So if you're in Texas, you've got to try the beef. There you go. Well, now, and, and I guess another thing I, I didn't necessarily realize before I kind of went and spent some time in Austin is also when you go to these barbecue places, obviously there are lines and things like that, but also don't go in a hurry because the ones I've been to, generally they serve you kind of right there. It's not like a typical restaurant where you order and you go sit down and someone, you know, people in the back get the food together. I know you go and you stand in line and you say, you know, I want a pound of brisket or a pound of beef ribs and like they pull it out and they cut it right there. So it's a bit of a slow process, but man, is it worth it? Oh yeah, Absolutely. I often say I don't wait in line for things, but actually barbecue is the only thing where I'll get in a long line or queue as my British car. I, I got to say working for a company that started in the UK, I have absolute delight in both making barbecue for my European colleagues or taking them to, um, to the different barbecue places up here or making recommendations for other parts of the state. Um, but yeah, barbecue is the only thing I, I wait in line for. <laughs> there you go. We, and yeah, and you mentioned it, you also make barbecue. I know you have a, a pit barrel style smoker. Is that right? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting. Um, I got it actually. There's a pretty large following, I think, in our space, and maybe I have sample bias, but of people that are into barbecue. I mean, there's there's quite a few people. You being, you know, one of the uh, one of the main guys in it as well. Um, and so I, I I picked up the I heard about the pit barrel cooker. And it's a steel drum, basically. So for those that aren't aware, a steel drum, it's got rebar um, that you basically hang meat from. And so it's a charcoal cooker. Now I put wood in. You don't need to put wood in it, but I'll, I'll use uh, oak and a, and a fruit wood. Usually is what I'll alternate in, depending on what I'm cooking. Um, and basically, the fat drifts down and then hits the charcoal in the wood and then comes back up. And so it makes a, a really good thing. 
what I like about the PBC is that it's relatively low maintenance as opposed to like, you know, the most manly of, of smokers that you could have an offset smoker where you have to, you know, man, manage the intake, the output, the temperature, it's very high maintenance, long cook. You know, I travel a lot. I have small children. You know, I always joke around with my wife, like I'll be on the road. I come back Friday. I'm like, Hey, I'm going to get up in the middle of the middle of the night and start cooking. You take the girls to soccer practice. You do all these things and I'm just going to drink a beer and cook a, a, a six, do a 16 hour cook on brisket. <laughs> um, that, that, that is, I, I would love to be able to do that, but it's not practical for my work, work life barbecue balance. Uh, so the pit barrel cooker is nice because it's a, it's a low maintenance that you still, I still manage the temperatures on it and it might do a little bit of adjustment, but it's a, it's inexpensive, maybe $400 if you get all the bells and whistles on it. Um, you also, I, I like it. It's a veteran owned business and they actually will let you, uh, like I have an army U S army veteran, um, emblem on mine. So they'll put that on for law enforcement, um, the different DOD branches. So I like it. It's a low maintenance way to cook, uh, with charcoal. And if you don't have a lot of time, I, like I did these beef ribs on Sunday, it was four and a half hours. Um, I do tri tip a lot and that's less than an hour cook. So, wow. uh, it's, it's really convenient versus like, I know you've done some really long cooks. Um, and those are good for special occasions, um, I think, but it's, it's difficult for me to find that work-life barbecue balance. Yeah. Well, I, I, I have the offset, like, like you mentioned, yeah, it's a labor of love because it means, you know, I'm basically out there every 30 minutes throwing logs on the fire, stoking the fire. And I can't, I mean, I can't really do much else. Like I can grab a laptop and maybe, you know, work on some writing or something, but anything that requires like long periods of time, I can't do it because I've got to, I've got to focus on the, on the, the, the pit. And that's a fun thing. And I like doing it from time to time, but honestly, yeah, you're right. I mean, sometimes I just need to, I want to prepare good meat, but not go to that level of extent. And, and those, uh, the pit barrels, I think are a good, uh, a good middle ground between uh, kind of the the lower end stuff and the and the more involved stuff, so that makes sense. And you you mentioned beef ribs, and I gotta say, I think beef ribs are my single favorite cut of meat that's cooked in a barbecue style. I think they're completely underrated. A lot of places don't serve them; they're hard to get. Um, do you have a favorite? Uh, I love beef ribs. Um, actually, there's two the beef ribs. Let's say I just did it on Sunday. It's so rich and so beefy, lots of flavor, and if you get it to the right temperature, about 203 degrees, the fat renders, well, actually, I think it, it's, uh, pull them out at 203, I think about 165 is when the fat starts to render. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. But another one that I really like, and there's a place in Fort Worth, um, oh, why am I forgetting the name of it? Um, oh, I'll look it up. But a place in Fort Worth that has pork belly burnt ends. Mm. So basically, you do the pork belly, you know, for, they do it in an offset smoker for, you know, hours and hours and hours. Then you pull it out, and then you cube it up, sauce it up actually the burnt ends would be an area in texas where you put would put sauce on something and then you cook it for another two to three hours so imagine this just perfect flavor perfect fat rendering of a big chunk of pork it's it's really really delicious that's that sounds amazing we're recording this at like 10 a.m in the morning but now I'm, <laughs> now i'm ready for lunch uh <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's use that opportunity to pivot over into uh, into your story. I want to talk about kind of kind of your uh, origin story a little bit, and we'll, we'll stick with this Texas thread because I mean, you were pretty much born and raised in Texas. Is that right? I wasn't born here, but as we say, we got here as fast as we could. Um, I was born in Nebraska, but we moved to the Gulf Coast, Houston area um, in about first grade. Uh, so, apart from me being in the Army, I've been in Texas, you know, since that time. Okay. Now, what was what was life like for you as a kid growing up in Texas? What did y'all do for fun? What was what was just life like living in Texas? 
Texas is real big on, um, you know, high school sports and things like that. Although, ironically, I wasn't growing up. I was more of a, I don't know, maybe a, a, like a lot of people in our space, you know, sci-fi geek into computers and things like that. I didn't really get into sports. It, ironically, I, I grew up in Houston. I moved to Dallas in the 90s. I know we talk about the Cowboys a lot on uh, Twitter. I was not a Cowboys fan. I was an Oilers fan growing up. Um, and then we moved to Dallas and they're winning in the nineties and, uh, I couldn't care less. And then I become a Cowboys fan and have all this mediocrity, um, uh, of <laughs> sports pretty, pretty much since then. So yep. kind of a, <laughs> a tough, tough place to be a Cowboys fan, but yeah, I, I, I would say pretty typical. If you look at the kind of stereotype of kids growing up in the cybersecurity, uh, space is, 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 is where I started out. And, and I was a big, actually kind of influential in my life, like Tom Clancy fan growing up, yeah. um, old Tom Clancy, not, you know, after they continued his legacy. Um, and in fact, that's part of why I went into to the intelligence field, you know, straight out of high school was I was a big, you know, Patriot games, all of those Jack Ryan stories. It was just really, really interesting for me, you know, when I was 15, 16 years old. And that actually kind of was part of the reason what led me to join Intel in, in, in the U.S. Army. Yeah. Now you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, football and, and big football area. And of course, like I said, we, we talk Cowboys and kind of share in the mediocrity that is being a Cowboys fan. <laughs> um, uh, they sucked us in in the nineties and we've been paying for it ever since, I guess. But, uh, uh, was you, you know, you weren't, you said, yeah, I don't guess you played sports and stuff, but football is, is massive in high school in Texas, especially I would imagine around the time, um, you were in high school there. Was that, I mean, is that for the people who aren't familiar with that that culture? I mean, even if you don't play football, like the towns revolve around that in a lot of ways, and that's a big part of your life. Is that right? Oh yeah, I mean that whole show Friday Night Lights is pretty descriptive. I think of Texas high school football uh, in particular, uh, particularly if you get to smaller towns where that's all they have. Um, there are no other sports. Um, uh, that are going on that are on the same level as that. So high school football is is huge here. Yeah. Now I, I always tell people if you want a really good book to read that's really just kind of a microcosm of really not just Texas but kind of the entire South in a lot of ways and really gives a good cultural representation of a lot of that during that time period is the the Friday Night Lights book by H. G. Bissinger. It's it's you know it, it follows closely the movie and the TV series, but it's it's a lot more in depth and it's it's you know real life as opposed to you know how they made it up for the movie. That's one I I can't recommend enough to people who are interested in learning more about that um but with that said so you know you said you were you were kind of into sci-fi and things like that and and what type of student were you in uh in in school i mean were you a good student were you focused on other things tell me about that um i was what how would i describe it i got a's but i was a pretty lazy student um and i don't i just wasn't ready for for college either i think that also came into play for for joining the army straight out of high school. I was a good student. I actually did academic decathlon. So that may speak to a little bit of my, my geek level that, that was out there. Um, but I just, I, I did well, but I could have done better. Um, I just kind of coasted along, but did well enough to get A's and things like that. But, um, yeah, didn't maximize my potential. I'll put it that way. Okay. Now, and you said, you said you decided to go straight from the high school, uh, you're at to the army instead of college, right? Why you, you mentioned a couple of reasons for that. I mean, you mentioned you were into Clancy and things like that. And were there, was there anything else going on as far as your thought process on why you wanted to go to the army? Um, that was pretty much it. I, 
when I was looking at the services, you know, I went to all the different services that were out there and army actually gave me the best job, um, in some ways. And I know there's a lot of air force people out there, right. Um, I didn't want to join the air force because of kind of the stigmatism, um, that, uh, that you have, or the stigma rather that, that you have with the, you know, the chair forces, they would call it. Now, ironically, I ended up spending almost my entire career in joint commands <laughs> living on air force bases. So it was actually the best of both worlds. I got the, uh, the army, the army promotion speed and some of the benefits that the army has, but I got to live the quality of life of the air force. So it worked out well, but yeah, that was pretty much, I was a Intel geek in my teenage years. Um, wasn't quite ready for college. I thought it would be cool to join the military and uh, started talking to recruiters. And then, you know, next thing I know is in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri for basic training. Yeah. Now, uh, obviously, I mean, you, you were an intelligence analyst in the in the Army, and there's only so much you can talk about there. But what you what did you you know learn during that period? What did you take away from that experience? You know, I think it was it was a great experience for me. I was 19 years old in Kuwait. The first time I'd really left the country, I don't really count border border towns in Mexico as leaving the country. So I think I, I spent two years in 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 England. I spent time in Germany, you know, all over the U.S. as well. I think for me, one thing I really appreciate about the military is you're around all kinds of people from different walks of life. You know, you've got people from the inner city in big, huge cities. You've got people from small little towns that, you know, kind of like the huge football fans we were, we were alluding to before. And so it's a really interesting cultural mix of people out there. So you get exposed to people at a very young age that have different perspectives, uh, different lifestyles, different backgrounds. And I, I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it is just kind of really stepped up my worldview in a much more significant way. And then living in Kuwait for six months, uh, living in the United Kingdom for two years straight, you know, just just reinforced that, you know, beyond just the, the the uniqueness across the United States and everyone that's a part of the armed services there, but to, to the much broader piece. So I really like one of the biggest things that I took away was, you know, my worldview. And then I think work ethic was another nice takeaway, aside from a bunch of, the, you know, getting to do cool intelligence work. I I worked in missions in the Middle East, you know, was doing a lot of stuff with with jihadis before they were, you know, you know, commonplace before bin Laden was a household name, uh, did a lot of work in Africa, did a lot of work with, with the European theater, Bosnia, you know, after, after the war there as well. So it's a really valuable experience for me. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I think there's, there's something to be said about the gaining a broader worldview. In it. And I, I don't know, I think we're just we're in a time where, the more people who can gain that broader worldview and see that there's things beyond their hometown or their own state or even their own country, like I feel like that's a super valuable thing. And I, and I think that's one of the great things about the military that gives people that perspective and it forces people into situations where they're surrounded by others who are from very different backgrounds than them. And that I just don't think people can get enough of that type of experience. So that sounds like it was certainly very valuable for you. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I would, I would do it all over again. Awesome. Now, when it came time to get out of the military, um, you know, what was your thought process there and how did you decide what was next for you? <laughs> uh, my thought process was, man, the army is stupid. I want to get out of it. Um, <laughs> so having said that I would do it all over again, I will contrast that with, you know, anyone that's worked for department of defense probably has uh, similar memories of their particular branch and just some of the things that were there. So, you know, I, and I'd also spent two years straight in the United Kingdom. I had not come back. To America at all. I spent all of my leave traveling Europe and 
and taking advantage of not spending, you know, a thousand dollars to fly across the Atlantic. So, you know, I was ready to come home to the States. Um, and I, my, my first job out of the military, I was doing tech support. So I immediately kind of moved into the technology space. Although, you know, to, to date myself, if you had old day syndrome, when I did tech support, you know, we had no way to remote into someone's desktop. You had to do it all through, okay, what do you see here? Click here. What do you see here? Um, we used to sometimes have to, this go old school on you, rip and replace dial-up networking on Windows 95. And you'd start off with saying, hey, and now get your CD. And someone would say, well, I have disks. I'd be like, oh, crap, there goes my call time. It's going to take forever to use these disks. So that was actually my first foray into you know the technology space because I, I went to school part-time for over a decade before I finally finished my bachelor's degree doing, at first, tech support. And then I did help desk. And then I got lucky getting into the space because of Sarbanes-Oxley, which is a lot of times we'll, we'll complain about uh, uh, regulations and things like that. But SOX is how I actually got into the cybersecurity space in and of itself. Okay, that's that's interesting, and and I guess you had you know you're doing help desk for a while. I, I tell you, there's something to be said about that whole uh, process you talked about of not being able to remote into someone's computer and having them have to explain to you what they see and telling them to, to click things. I think a lot of us probably started out doing that, like doing tech support for our families. Um, and and I hate to sound like an old guy, but kids these days will not know what that was like before you can remote into <laughs> systems. And um, I, th- there's something about the skills you develop during that um, that are just kind of priceless and, and useful in a lot of ways. Lots of patience, lots of absolute patience and perseverance, too, because you'll have people just super upset. So uh, I, I, I think I did that for about two years, frontline, you know, support for uh, Roadrunner uh, cable modems at the time. Um, and Southwestern Bell as another one. Um, but it was good experience, but I was certainly glad to then parlay that into a corporate help desk job, which then I parlayed into ultimately desktop support. And then I got into to our space via the SOC side. Yeah. Now, and at some point you worked for UT, right? At the University of Texas there. Yeah, I worked for the University of Texas at Dallas. It's actually my last practitioner job. And that was... I don't know how many people have ever worked in higher education, but it's a pretty amazing space to work in. I was there just about two years, and I did incident response when I was there. And it was a fascinating environment to work in because you had students hacking for increasing their scores and grades and things like that. You had students hacking because it was their view of what they thought responsible disclosure was on a particular <laughs> web web application that was there. Um, we got to work with uh, law enforcement agencies on, um, I can talk about them because we did press releases on at the time, but you know, some, some, some long-term intrusions. And so it was my first experience in the IR world where, you know, hands on keyboard, you know, deploy a countermeasure, watch the adversary change what they're doing as a result of their countermeasure. We were also the first time I ever had a, con- had a conversation, which anybody that does incident response um, should be prepared for and hopefully it's done now is letting an adversary persist on your environment. Um, whereas counterintuitive, if an org hasn't had that conversation, um, because we weren't confident in our ability to detect everything they had. Um, so I remember talking to management about that scenario and having to make the case of, look, we need to be able to do this. Otherwise we block them and then we're going to lose all visibility into what they're doing. So it was a really, it was a really good time for me. The other piece that I liked about EDU is super cheap. So we did a lot of open source stuff. So we were running FreeBSD on our snort boxes with base. 
um, uh, MySQL was kind of our intrusion detection stack that was there. So it, we use Spam Assassin as another tool. They've now gone to enterprise tools, but it, there's nothing like open source. I always tell this to people that are interested about how to learn about our space or get into our space. It's like, use an open source project, get on an open source project, because you'll really learn about the technology. It's not a black box like you would have with a commercial IPS um, that, that we also had in the environment. Snort was great because we just had so much more capability to to look at the the rules and signatures that were out there. So. It was a valuable experience for a lot of reasons. You know, I, I worked in K-12 education for a while, and I never worked in, in higher ed, but I, I did consult to them a lot. And that's that's a very unique environment just because, I mean, you know, imagine the scenario where you have a whole bunch of endpoints that come into your network that are essentially hostile. I mean, you can't control them, and you can't you can't necessarily – I mean, you can do network-based controls, but you can't install things on them because they're student-owned, and, and that's – that's an interesting lesson to have to learn, um, and it sounds like you you kind of guys had to learn that some of the hard way with students hacking into things and, and things of that nature. But it also sounds kind of like you enjoyed your time there, and that it was it was a valuable experience to you. I mean, for for folks who are listening to this, who maybe are looking for a job or considering a job working in you know IT security at a higher ed institution, I mean, is that something you would recommend? Is that something you can make a good case for? Yeah, I I think so. Now, to to be fair, it's it's government. You're not going to get paid a lot, um, but it can actually work to your advantage, particularly if you're, you know, a recent graduate or newer in your career, um, because you know you may not have a family to support. You may not need as much resources um, that someone that's a little bit further along in their career for. The work-life balance in EDU is day and night different than any other job that I've had since on the vendor side or at Forrester. So there's a better work-life balance there. Um, I got to help teach classes that I was there. You're around students, around innovation. I, I, I find it to be a really, really good experience. I actually would like to finish a master's degree and then be able to teach just to be engaged in that community. So I would definitely recommend to anyone out there, um, well, A, if, if you're on our side, you know, using universities, recruit, building relationships with those heads of the computer science programs and the MIS programs and the business school for recruiting purposes. But I'm very fond of my time there. Um, it was it was a good experience, um, but as I progressed in my career and opportunities, right, I, just the salary that you would get there, and it's part of the. I think that's why you would have opportunities there if you're having a hard time getting into our space. Uh, maybe you have a CS background or you just have an MIS degree, because they have constraints on salaries. So if you could go work there, if you worked at a SOC in in a, in a university for two years, it'd be really, really good experience that you could parlay into a, a nice corporate role after that. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And I, I generally tell people often that if you're trying to find your first job in security, you know, look at your local university because they, they have a need for people because, like you said, they can't pay as much as, as corporate places and, and things of that nature. And, and really, there's just a lot of interesting data and exciting stuff to do. And it's you mentioned the work-life balance, and I think a lot of people could interpret that to say, oh, well, there's not a lot going on there. But it's it's almost kind of the opposite. It's like there's so much going on that it's, it's not like you're seeing a patient at a time. It's constantly like mass casualty triage, and you just have to very carefully carefully pick your battles. Um, and, and I don't know, I think that's a useful skill for people to pick up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Now, I guess at some point you said you did some sock work. Um, tell me about that. Well, that was at the university as well. I mean, oh, we okay. were, uh, it, that was at, at one point I was the lone security guy, uh, before I went to, to UT Dallas. Um, and then we were basically, like a four-man team. So we were doing SOC, vulnerability, probably not unlike a lot of listeners here, right, where they're they're not large enough 
to break out into dedicated roles. Uh, so you kind of have this shared matrix responsibility. So we were doing, you know, the, 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 the equivalent of the sock work, uh, for us, um, there as well as, as, as kind of a key component with the, the Sims that we had at the, well, we didn't even have Sims, uh, when I first started there and then we got Splunk, which made the aggregation component a little bit easier. Uh, so that's also a good, you know, trying to just triage all these alerts out there is a good experience for anyone in our space to have to kind of know the pain of a SOC analyst. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there is a lot of pain there. I want to pause for a minute and tell you about one of our newest sponsors, Ninja Jobs. Now, y'all know my advertising policy in this podcast. I only advertise for things that I actually like, and I really like Ninja Jobs. It certainly falls in that category. Ninja Jobs is the premier job platform used by thousands of cybersecurity professionals. And that's whether you're looking for a job or trying to fill one, Ninja Jobs has you covered. If you're considering a change in your job or just looking for your new challenge, or maybe you just want to see what's out there, Ninja Jobs is a free platform with hundreds of jobs posted weekly. You can register for free and begin your search right now. Now, on the flip side, say you're struggling to find top talent for your organization. You're having trouble filling a specific position. Skip the recruiters and head over to Ninja Jobs. You can register for free, and you actually have a special promo code for listeners of this podcast. The promo code is the source T H E S O U R C E the source, and that'll give you ten percent off your first job listing. If you're looking for a job or looking to fill one, I highly recommend you spend some time and look at Ninja Jobs. I think you'll like what you see. Now let's get back to Rick. Now, I guess at some point after this, you worked for Acuvant for a little while. Is that right? Which is now Optive. Yeah, I was a sales engineer, which was also a good experience for about two years. Um, and it was, um, you know, it helped me broaden my horizons as far as the ecosystem, all the vendor landscape that are out there. And ultimately, helped me parlay into, you know, being an SE helped parlay into the Forrester role. I don't know that I would have been able to, to, to get a role at Forrester had I not had that experience and, and dealing with, with the vendor side, you know, another area where I, I like being on the vendor side and I know you've had this experience as well. You know, you're not just one company. For example, when I worked at UT Dallas, I was there two years. I knew the political hierarchy. I knew the organization. I knew the risks and, you know, you kind of get, it, it, you can, unless you work really hard, kind of stagnate in a role. If you're on just one organization, depending on the, 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 the org that you work for. Absolutely. What I like about the vendor side, both from Acuvant, Optive, Forrester, and, and now a Digital Shadows, is I'm working with a healthcare uh, company this day. The next day I'm working with, maybe it's higher education. The next day I'm working with a, a large financial services. I, I like the different problem sets that you have in all these different verticals, different threats that target them. Uh, so I find... Personally, at this stage of my life, I really like the the dynamic nature of being on the vendor side and working with all these different problem spaces. It, it never gets old. Yeah, there's I mean, there's a lot of surface area and in information security to be to be scraped upon, and you can uh, the ability to pivot between those different areas and focus on different areas that kind of enrich you both as a company and as an individual. There's there's value in being able to do that for sure. Um, now, you mentioned Forrester, and I I think I want to spend a little bit of time here because uh, I think. That's how I came to know you when you were working at Forrester, and I think that's how a lot of people did because you, you were kind of very much out there, right? You're, you're in the industry. You're with all these vendors and all these people who are interested in, in vendor products. And I guess, first of all, how do you, I mean, how did you find Forrester? How did you decide that was something you wanted to do? Well, it's interesting. I did not want to do it, interestingly enough. I, um, you know, one of the things that, that I've always been good at um, is, is networking. And so when I 
was the loan security guy before I worked at UT Dallas, a tipping point sales team came to me uh, when tipping point was brand new and they were looking at network based IPS and the sales rep on that team actually helped me get my job at Activant now Optive and the solutions architect on that team uh, was John Kinderbog. Um, and some may know John as the, the creator of the zero trust networking model. Um, and John has since left uh, to go on to Palo Alto Networks, where he's a field-level CTO. But I knew John, and he's a local guy here in DFW, doesn't live too far from me, and we would have barbecue meetups. It's a good way to network in these parts. Yeah, it is. Um, and uh, so it's also a good way to sell. It's amazing. We, if we wanted to take people to one of the better barbecue restaurants and they wouldn't take a call, if you send an email and say, hey, you want to go to Pecan Lodge? you get a call back. There you go. <laughs> uh, but essentially it was through John. They were looking for, to bring in another technical analyst. Um, when John had been one of the first more technical analysts that were there. And um, I didn't really know a lot about it. I had never been in an organization that was a, was large enough and EDU certainly couldn't afford to have a, a Gartner or a Forrester uh, subscription. And I, I didn't, at first I didn't want to do it. Um, I, I, I didn't think I was right for the role um, but I went ahead and continued and learned more. It was actually absolutely the most grueling hiring process I ever been through. It was about three or four months long from first call to, you know, offer letter type of deal. You had to write a full piece of research, um, on an area that you would be confident and comfortable in. I actually wrote mine on web gateways and how web gateways were dying and we were moving more to the SaaS model, the Z scalers of the world, because I, I had sold a lot of that as a sales engineer, so it was something that I knew. And then you had to write the report, and then it got critiqued, and then you had to present it. Um, so I had to come into the Dallas Forrester office, get on a WebEx with analysts from from London to San Francisco to Boston, um, and then present, and then just get grilled. And this was all happening in the last month of a quarter, uh, supporting sa- six or seven sales reps. It was just a tough time. When I was done, I told John, I was like, man... I don't care if I get this job or not. I'm just done to have this grueling process complete. Now, fortunately, um, fortunately, it went well. I had a terrible joke in my presentation where I was doing like a little sham wow. But if you've seen me present, I do a lot of pop culture movie references and things like that. And I had probably the biggest joke that I've never had a joke fall so flat before during that presentation at the very beginning. And it kind of just derailed me a little bit. But I, I still did well enough to get the role. And then I spent four and a half years um, at Forrester, and it was a really valuable experience for me as well. Yeah. Well, and one thing you mentioned, too, you mentioned your ability to network and how important that was to you. Do you attribute a lot of that to your time in the Army? I, I, I think so, just because you're around so many different people. Um, and, and for those that stay in the military even longer, the ability to network and the politics are extremely important for promotion. Of course, I, I got out as a E5 as a sergeant, so that, that wasn't a piece there. But I just think... I grew up very introverted, super introverted. Um, and I think going into the military helped get me out of that shell. And then I just kind of picked this this up where I have a hit list of people and I have lunch with them every six months or once a year or something like that still to this day um, just to kind of continue to maintain and, and build the network. I think it's been the – I've only had one job in my career where I have not gotten it through my network. 
Yeah. Uh, so you, you can't you can't understate how important networking is. Yeah, I, I mentioned that just because it, it seems like a common thread. The people I know who are good networkers, a lot of them have military experience, and I guess I mean a lot of that is you're taken from where you live and you're placed in some random location and you don't know anybody. And if you don't network, you're just going to be lonely. So you're kind of forced into it, and that's a valuable thing. It seems you know throughout your career later on. Absolutely. Cool. Now. Let's talk, you know, as far as how Forrester works and really not just Forrester, but how analyst firm works. I think this is something that's kind of a mystery to a lot of people. And, and I think we're all familiar with, you know, Forrester Wave and Gartner Magic Quadrant and, and, and things like that. But can you kind of give me like a 10,000 foot overview of, of how that works? How do these things come to exist? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like I say, I never knew anything about the analyst world before I worked there. Um, and then I really didn't know anything about the non-Forester world until I've been on the vendor side and been doing the, the analyst relations function that's there. I think there's a lot of questions, and you had it, and we'll probably get to it, about the kind of pay-to-play, and you know, we'll, we'll get to that, I'm sure. But I, I think ultimately the one of the things that John told me, and I was like, what do you like about being a Forester analyst? And what John said is you know, it gives you the ability to kind of steer the ship. Um, and zero trust is a good example of something that John brought and it's, you know, it's making it into the vernacular, you know, 10 years later after, after he introduced these concepts and and brought them together. Uh, so I think there's several pieces of being an industry analyst. One is you're forward leaning. Now I know there's a lot of snickers out there. Um, even sometimes me as a former analyst, I kind of laugh on the forward leaning bit, but you're writing about the future of a space. You're also kind of covering the current status of the space. So almost like if you look at Forrester Waves, um, Magic Quadrants, um, some of the IDC research, right? You're doing the consumer reports type of research around a particular space, features, capability, things along those lines. Um, but you're really serving two sets of clients. And all analyst firms are not the same. Um, they, 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 they have different niches, different capabilities. Um, you have the vendors that you serve, uh, then you have your enterprise clients that are out there. And I think where people probably get the most value, um, from a, from an industry analyst, um, perspective, uh, my sense would be validation of their strategy and being able to say, to use a third party. I mean, you can say all day long, I want to invest in X. It could be a product or it could be a capability that you want to have. But if you could put a piece of Forrester research behind that a piece of Gardner research behind that it can kind of support your business case i actually think that's probably one of the better use cases um that 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 you can get value to support your pieces i would still get people who would in fact i did a whole i did a whole line of research that spanned 18 months that i called the targeted attack hierarchy of needs and it was kind of similar to a maslow hierarchy of needs and it and it all started like the very first piece of it was you know have an actual strategy um, which sounds like a duh moment, but so many organizations, I did this specifically because people wanted to buy fire. Their strategy for targeted attacks, APTs, whatever was to buy a fire eye box. And I got so many inquiries around that. It really, not to say that that doesn't have its role, but it's, it's more of a, it's a, you need a program and process and then tech. So that was kind of what I wrote there. And I was trying to help guide people's strategy to think a little bit differently. Um, so it, it, you know, it's it was an interesting opportunity. Uh, we can probably get into threat intelligence a little bit more because I had I was there kind of at the right time for threat intelligence emergence. But I really think it's it's those two people that you're serving. You're serving vendors, 
and you're serving enterprise clients, and those needs are different, and different firms take different approaches to them. Yeah, and, and I guess the way I've always seen it, from at least the the client side, is is you have people who, you know, they they're building a security program, and they they know they need X, or they think they need X, and and the analyst firms kind of serve as their infosec sherpa to guide them along the way, and at least point them in the right direction. Is that a reasonable characterization of that part of the relationship? Yeah, because I, if you know, you do a lot of inquiries where clients can set up thirty-minute calls. No, no, not all the firms do this, but Gartner and Forrester do, where you can set up thirty-minute calls, and you'll get okay. Give me three people um, to shortlist to do to 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 do a bake off against, and then maybe when it's come, you've done your 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 down select and you've got your one vendor, you have a follow up call to say, okay, what can you validate this this kind of selection? So I think a lot of it is sounding board Sherpa. Um, to kind of validate some of your strategies that are out there or give you a space. You know, I think one of the challenges that we have, and this is not breaking news, right, is you have so much going on. It's very difficult in particular to keep up with the startups that are out there. So if you can use an analyst firm who's talking, now different firms, you know, have different perspectives on startups because they may not serve them as much, but you can use industry analysts to help give you an idea. Oh, okay, here's the cool um, startups that are out there that are doing something interesting for S3 buckets in Amazon, as an example, or just have a have a you know a very interesting uh, elastic security type of story. So I think that's another area that analysts can be used for is to help you keep track of the thousands of uh, vendors that are out there because there's so many vendors in the market now. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, as far as you know, the discovery of all. Let's say you you know you're you know you have a lot of people who are asking you about you know Intel Intel products or SIM products or any type of product space, and you have to decide, okay, who am I going to evaluate? Like, who am I going to you know pick up in this bake off? It sounds like one of the things you do is talk to these people, and and they'll say, oh, I've heard of these three, and then I've heard of these three. So is that primarily how you make your list of who you're going to talk to? Is just by talking to people, and they tell you who they've heard of? Uh, it's it's pretty. I would say that's one. That's one data point. Um, mostly, in my experience, it, w- it was very rare that someone had heard of a vendor that I hadn't. Um, so I would use, let me, I, I call it ground truth. Um, so, okay, tell me about vendor X. What are you hearing about that? You know, I've talked to the, to the founders. I've talked to the executive team, and this is what they're saying. What do you hear, Mr. Customer, that's talking to them? So kind of get, you know, validation of is this a useful product or not. But I think it's probably a pretty broad area as far as you know trying to track the vendors in the space one is you do blogs about it and then people reach out to you to do briefings for you because oh rick's the threat intelligence analyst so we have something in that space so let me uh let me interact with him so you know being active on blogs and social media to let people know you're covering an area and you've got upcoming research will bring the inbounds in from the vendors um looking at vcs and who they're funding um, you know, I'd have Google alerts set up there to try to find out, you know, when people are getting seed round uh, or a round, you know, early stage investment to try to keep uh, keep an eye um, there. It would also I always liked the innovation sandbox at RSA conference, which has, you know, Shark Tank for those that aren't aware. It's on day one of RSA conference is my favorite part of the conference because you basically they do a call for vendors, essentially call for startups and then they curate them and then they have 10 a small list of 10 vendors across the space. And then they have a panel of, you know, CISOs, VCs, uh, thing, you know, you know, luminaries in the space, that sort of thing that evaluate them. And then there's a winner. Signet has a similar piece. So I would also look at who are the people coming out of the innovation sandbox, uh, innovation city at black hat Signet uh, to get a list of, of vendors. Now those will typically be a lot of those will be more B2C, but really it's just trying to 
cast as wide a net um, to, to, to understand who the startups are. The reason I was always, I made a, um, a pretty significant effort to stay up to speed on the startups, whereas some analysts were more focused on almost what you think is the blue chip players, the Cisco's, uh, IBM's of the world, but the innovation is happening at the startup level, and they're the ones solving the interesting problems that have, and they have agility. So I was always very keen and was very deliberate to try to understand the emerging companies in the areas that I covered. Otherwise, I was doing a disservice to my enterprise clients. I want to pause for just a second to tell you about CloudShark. I love CloudShark. It's just like Wireshark, but it's actually web-based, so it can often get you to the answer you're looking for quite a bit faster, and it also allows you to pass around URLs instead of files, which is a lot easier, especially when you're dealing with large capture files. I actually used CloudShark when I was writing my book, Practical Packet Analysis, and I use it at home in my lab to organize and index my packet captures. It's really convenient, has a lot of really cool advanced features, like a deep search for matching packets with standard filters, and an ability to do IDS signature matching within your packet captures. It's all really great stuff. Now, they've created a coupon code just for listeners of this podcast. The code is source code 17, source code 17, and listeners of this podcast will get 20% off their first year of CloudShark if they sign up for a yearly count. That's a total of four months for free, and it's a really great deal. Again, I'm a huge fan of CloudShark, and I think you'll like it too. I also want to tell you about Squirrel. Squirrel is an investigation platform, and I really like it because it operates kind of how analysts thinks. It's built on a graph database model, so once you define your model, you have the ability to traverse objects and entities in your network and the relationships that exist between them. And as I know and as you know, all investigations are about uncovering relationships. I like Squirrel because it makes this really easily done. It is visual, so it's working like you think, and that's a unique thing. Not many tools do that. I'm a big fan of Squirrel. You should check them out. It's a really solid investigation and hunting platform, and you can learn more about them at squirrel, S-Q-R-R-L dot com. Now let's get back to Rick. Now, as far as, you know, you, you, obviously there, in any given problem space, there is, you know, there are a number of vendors. There may be two or three big players, there may be a bunch of startups. You know, in terms of how you, you know, we kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, in terms of how you focus your time on which ones you know, you want to spend most time reviewing. What, what is involved with that? And, I, and I'll ask the question too. I mean, is it a is there pay to play involved? I mean, is it a matter of do do vendors have to pay these analyst firms to get a thorough evaluation? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I would almost say it's like relationship to play. I guess I'll answer the second part first. Um, the way I, in fact, I did a I did a whole talk in 2016 at uh, Mach 37, which is a accelerator in in Virginia. Um, called engaging uh, industry analysts for fun and profit, and it was basically you know lessons to vendors out there on how to interact with analysts. I'll I'll give I'll give the notes on that to to the audience, and I kind of cover some of these uh, some of these areas in that particular talk. But I, I think it's very much a relationship driven uh, component. You don't have to. Well, I'll speak I'll speak from a Forrester perspective because that's where I think I'm qualified the most to, to speak, you know, you don't have to be a Forrester client to be in any of their research. Um, so from that aspect, there's not a pay to play. You don't have to be a Forrester client uh, to do a briefing um, with someone uh, with an industry analyst in your coverage area. So you have access there. But where I think becoming a client of the vendors uh, of the of the industry analyst firms means you have more touches with the analysts. 
uh, so you have a better relationship with them. Um, so the more communication both ways um, that I had with the vendors that I was interested in and the ones that were interested in, in, in me, the more I know about what they're doing. The worst surprise for a vendor is a piece of research comes out that's in your world and you weren't mentioned, included, didn't even know it was happening. So that's why I think it's it's really a relationship. How how good of a relationship, how, how, how good of a networking job have you done with an industry analyst? And, and the, you know, you can do guerrilla stuff on this too, like through social media. Uh, you know, when an analyst tweets something out, you interact with them on social media. When an analyst uh, does a blog, you interact with them there. But I really think if you want to be successful and you're a vendor, you've got to have a relationship with the firm and the in particular, you know, analysts that are strategic to you. Now, of mm-hmm. course, when you subscribe to a, to a, to a firm, then you're going to have inquiry access and you could talk to them a whole lot more as an example, right? You could do a briefing every six months probably, or you could do monthly inquiries with that analyst and you would have to be a client for that. So it's not a pay to participate. It's not a pay to play, but if you are subscribing to that vendor, you're going to get more touches. I really think the key here is having a relationship with these analysts. Yeah, it, it almost—I mean, it, uh, the way you describe it, it almost kind of seems like lobbying, like you would lobby a politician to some degree. It's—it's it's, you know, people aren't not, you know, there is money involved with that, I guess, but it's not necessarily direct contributions. It's more about FaceTime and, and getting more access in, in those types of ways. Now, the question I have is—is is given the model as you've described it, does does this naturally bias these firms towards larger companies? And I'll give you an example: was you know, I was at FireEye for a time, and FireEye had a dedicated person whose entire job was nothing but analyst relations, and they they basically were in constant contact with all the various analyst firms, you know, feeding information to them, and and you know, filling out those surveys and things like that. So does that does the way this currently works out does it bias towards the bigger firms and and against the smaller firms? Yeah, I would I would say yes. Um, I think that's very legit. I'll, I would say that too. Like now being um, doing analyst relations function here, not a dedicated AR person, but having that function at Digital Shadows um, and looking at the budget that you might have here versus you know a huge budget that one of the blue chips would have. That certainly comes into play. Now, what I would say though is again, not all analyst firms are are, are the same and focus on the same market that's out there look i'll use 451 as as an example right um they will spend more time with smaller vendors that are out there so they're a little bit more accessible um from that perspective so but i think if you're thinking gartner and forrester you know to you're going to have to make an investment to have a relationship there and of course that takes time and of course it takes money so yeah i would agree with that that if you have as a company more resources you can focus those resources both people time and investment on these firms to help build the relationships yeah. with those uh, with those analysts. So in that way, I mean, we say it's not pay to play, but it, it, you know, it's maybe not pay the analyst firm directly to play, but it's it's you know, it, there's a cost associated with that. It seems. Yeah, vendors have to invest to build those relationships. Um, you know, I think it it would accelerate what you would do. I think you might be able to do it other ways. The one thing that that I would always say is interesting on the like, especially. I did work with some companies that were in stealth mode, so I would work with some very um, early um, on companies. But a lot of the people that were actually Forrester clients were much larger. Uh, I, you know, you may be B round type of company, uh, maybe an A round type of company before you would you would invest uh, resources significantly in, in in that in that dedicated kind of functional area. Mm-hmm. 
that makes sense. Now, one of the things, obviously, the the analyst firms they're very concerned with. They want to be out there pretty quickly on the you know what's new and what's trending and what can actually help people, right? I think that's that's pretty common. If there's a new technology that's out there that that you know is valuable to people and helping them further their information security goals, the analyst firms want to kind of be on top of that. Now, one thing I've I've kind of noticed is that leads to a little bit of bias, really. That, that you know you you go out and you do the research in this new and emerging field. Say it's sim, you know, back in the day. Say it's machine learning or something like that now. And you go out and do all the research, and there may be only a few key players. So what I see happen is, is the analyst firm ends up, you know, whether it's the, the Forster Wave or the Gartner Magic Quadrant, the, the higher-ranked things are not necessarily – well, they're, the, they're not the best tool. They're, they're the first tool because the first tool is, a, you know, naturally a little bit more evolved than some of the later ones. And then that research maybe sits out there for a while, and the first tool kind of gets promoted more than the best tool. Is that something you've observed as well? And if so, kind of what, you know, what, what is to be done about that? Hmm, that's a good question. I'm trying to think if I have seen that. I mean, certainly the first per- – I use FireEye as an example. Well, I mean, they weren't necessarily even the first one out there. I, I think sales and marketing comes into, from a vendor perspective, pretty significantly there as well. Uh, so I, I actually think it's a pretty complicated answer. The industry analysts are certainly a component uh, uh, for that, and having them write about you early on uh, can be quite helpful, but also – you know, it's well. Let me put it this way. So let me put it this way. So I'll give an example of the sim space, and and I know pretty early on, Gartner was really big on ArcSide, and that was the, that was the sim for them all to beat, and that created what I observed was an issue of well, one, when people saw that they were in the upper right of the quadrant, so everybody bought bought ArcSide. The problem then that wasn't the biggest problem though. The problem became that all the other vendors who were making sim looked at the quadrant and said, hey, if we want to get into the upper right portion of this quadrant, we have to build ours to be like ArcSide. And so all the tools mm, yes, started, yeah. started moving towards that average as opposed to trying to innovate on their own. Yeah. Now that is, a, uh, yeah, within that context, I would agree. Um, now you don't always know the full evaluation criteria that an analyst will use. Well, you know, the criteria you may not know um, some of the details on the back end, although they're becoming more transparent there. Uh, in, in that case, I think what the strategy needs to be is to, uh, in, influence as best you can the analysts on these are the things that I think you need to consider for your next MQ, for your next wave, you know, whatever your evaluation is to say, look, we do things differently. But I would agree, yes, whoever's up there and uh, up and to the right is who everyone's going to chase. They're going to want to have feature parity with them, even if that feature parity isn't innovative. Uh, so I think at the same time, I can understand why you would want to have that, but you need to be working with the analyst firms to say, look, I think you need to consider X here for the next time that you do that. And then you also work with your customers to talk to, you know, this is where the whole analyst relations discipline comes in. And it takes a long time to, to kind of bring the analyst around. And sometimes you may not ever bring them around. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, one of the things I hear a lot from practitioners in the space is, you know, the the wave and the quadrant basically dictate a lot of their purchasing um, to the point, you know, uh, you know, a group of analysts will say we need a we need a SIM or an Intel product or a malware analysis product. And, you know, their boss will come to them and say, OK, you can buy anything that's in the upper right quadrant or at the higher end of the spectrum. And it really eliminates anything else that may they may, you know, may actually be a better fit for various needs. Um, for the folks who are who are listening, you know, who are maybe experiencing that, or, or the bosses who who relegate people to those sections, I mean, do you is that a practice you're in favor of, or, is, or how do you how do you keep people from from doing that sort of thing? I guess you know, I, I almost feel like it's the old adage is like nobody ever got fired for buying Cisco or IBM. Yeah, it, it, in some, not all cases, but in many cases, it's like a CYA. 
if the investment goes wrong, you can say, oh, Forrester told me that this was safe to do and it's kind of covering yourself. I, I really feel like from a senior, actually I use this term and you may have heard me talk about over the years called expense in depth versus defense in depth. We're just buying lots of junk. We don't have a, actually, it, it actually tied into the targeted attack hierarchy of needs. I think this comes down to the investment strategy that organizations have. And in saying that, yes, industry analyst firms are a data point, but they shouldn't be the sole uh, reason that you make a purchase decision. Um, and and I really think if you're a security leader and you're doing that kind of C, CYA investment approach, it's the wrong one. You're not going to get the results um, that, that are going to look good for you necessarily. I think part of this expense and depth um, stuff that I'll talk about is, you know, not even understanding why we're making an investment. What are the use cases for us? Knowing what the success criteria are. And if you know what you want to accomplish on an investment up front and another vendor that isn't at the, up and to the right, you know, meets those needs, then you know you're going to have success versus that. So I actually think it's probably more of a social, political, you know, organizational behavior type of conversation that you need to have around the investment strategy, working with the procurement, especially as you get into larger groups, when you send it off to a procurement team, you know, they will put heavy weight in those particular areas. So there, what I might recommend is, you know, having the vendor that you want to invest in that maybe is not up and to the right, um, put you in contact with customers that have similar need as you and having references there, you know, looking beyond a data point of just what the industry analysts have, particularly, you know, re reference accounts that can validate what you're doing. If you're going through a channel partner, having the channel partner be another voice of perspective on here. Cause if, if you're doing, if you, all you rely on is who's up and to the right, your investment strategy is going to fail. It is not the right way to approach things. Right. No, I agree with that fully. Okay. Now you mentioned this earlier and you, you know, your time at Forrester really overlapped with kind of the rise of threat intelligence as a thing people are concerned about. And so I think you have surprised some pretty unique perspective to offer there on, on regards to the evolution of threat intelligence and what you saw. And of course we can all, we can map this up against, you know, various things. I mean, the, the release of the APT one report, the rise of, of, of firms who specialize in threat intelligence. I mean, I guess really just, I'd be, interested in your general thoughts on threat intelligence then and now over the course of the past you know 10 years and and what it was what it is now and where it's going in terms of its its benefit and usefulness in the realm of network security yeah the, the timing was good for me and also i think something else that was helpful for me is i actually came out of the intelligence community um i'm not there may be some out there but i'm not aware of any other analysts that had that background so i had some credibility uh, there, so it, it, it was it was nice. I was actually just checking the date. The first time I blogged about threat intel at Forrester was in 2012, um, and it was a blog that I did um, called "My Threat Intel Can Beat Up Your Threat Intel," and it was really like a diatribe, like an analyst uh, typically would do, about being annoyed with vendor briefings talking about the size of their intel networks, and really it was more the size of their data collection. Um, and it was you know atomic indicators. We have this many. URLs, we have this many uh, hashes, blah, blah, blah. And I was just really, really irritated with it. And in some ways we have progressed and in other ways we have stayed the same because you will still see vendors talking about the size of their collection capability. Um, and I think there is some value there, um, but it's not necessarily all about the breadth of what you do. There's depth there. Is it relevant to a particular threat model? Do people even have the ability to take any action on this stuff? Um, I, I've used the term indicators of exhaustion uh, to kind of talk about the perspective I have on some of the value in, in, in IOCs that are out there. So in, in some ways, we have 
we have grown. Um, in other ways, we've we've stayed the same. If you look at um, anecdotally the types of, I actually went back and I looked at my first presentation from 2013 for uh, the SANS Threat Intelligence Summit, which at that time it was the first year that we did it, and I was just a speaker. From year three on, I helped um, help run the event itself, and I like to use that conference to talk about the evolution of of threat intelligence that was out in the space, very indicator focused. Uh, my very first talk that I did at that is actually one of my favorite ones that I've ever done. It's, it was called If It Bleeds, We Can Kill It. And it was a predator, you know, Schwarzenegger predator theme talk all about threat intel. And I was looking through it this morning, actually, as I was preparing for this. And it was very indicator focused. Um, and now if you look at the talk that I'm going to do next year uh, for the event, I'm doing a talk around structured analytic techniques. So I think one of the one of the areas that we have improved upon is Although we still see a lot of the indicator uh, noise that's out there, a lot of it from the vendors, and also from people that are just starting off. You have to start off somewhere, you know, open source indicators, ISAC feeds, you know, it's where you start, right? Um, and then you progress. So I think organizations that are a little bit further in journey are starting to think about their trade craft, um, starting to think about actual collection management capabilities, uh, starting to think about analytical rigor in assessments that they do for organizations that are working on assessments. So we, we, we are starting to mature. And if you even look at the types of submissions from last year at San CTI summit, what we've got from this year, you're going to be speaking at it as well. I'm mm -hmm. super, I've never, I've never seen you speak before. So I'm super excited um, uh, to see you talk in person. Um, you, you're getting things that are kind of stepping up the maturity that's out there. So while we have come a long way in many ways, there is no finish line. I did a talk 2014, I think, at RSA that I still think is pretty relevant on the threat intel side. Um, it's called uh, Threat Intelligence is like three-day potty training. Um, at the time, um, I was potty training one of my daughters. And there is, I don't know if anyone's familiar with this three-day potty training method, but supposedly soup to nuts done with potty training in three days. And essentially, you have them wear underwear and let them pee all over themselves for three days straight. Then they think it's so gross that they're done. Now, we tried three-day potty training, and I will say it was not successful for us. <laughs> um, but the, the analogy I did on the RSA talk was you can't do three-day threat intelligence. This is not a sprint. This is a marathon. And I think a lot of people may recognize it's a marathon, but they don't even know where the finish line is, and they just start running in the wrong direction. Um, so we still have a long way to go, but I, I am optimistic about the progress that we've made over the past five or six years. Do you think the vendor space that, that kind of exists around threat intelligence, I mean, there's a lot of good and bad that, that goes with that. I mean, there's obviously the whole, it was China, it was Russia, the attribution part of it and all that. But I mean, do you think, do you, you know, there's this whole notion that, you know, providing effective security is not always compatible with building a business around these specific niches. Um, do you think that is true for, for you know, uh, threat intelligence? Do you think it, it, it continues to be its own niche? Do you think it, it gets absorbed by other functions? I mean, you know, tell me about that. I think a lot of it depends on the size of the organization that's there. If you go into a smaller, maybe I use the example when I was the security guy, uh, or even when I was on a team of four, right? In that area, you may be relying on providers to give you a lot of your capability, um, particularly on RFI support, right? Where you can phone a friend, ask them a question, uh, there, you know, I think for most organizations, standing up a dedicated threat intelligence function may not be the best investment. It, this actually ties back to the target attack hierarchy of needs research that I did at Forrester. For example, if you have the same 
local admin password across your whole environment. Um, if you don't have multi-factor authentication set up on your public-facing applications, um, if you don't have good control over your administrative accounts, both within Windows as well as maybe an SA account on a database, those sorts of things, maybe time. Um, so, so, so I, I think you know it's going to be we're going to use a provider that's giving you things that are relevant to your actual business. Um, and I think a lot of folks will probably not progress beyond the indicator level. And what I mean by that is not doing other types of assessment work. This is what the threat landscape looks for retail in 2018, some of the things that the much larger kind of blue chip Fortune 100 threat intel teams are working on. Mm -hmm. Cool. Now, uh, we're about out of time here, so I'm going to ask you one more question, and then I, we'll talk about some events you have coming up. Uh, the question I ask everybody at the end of this is, is for people who you know hear about your origin story, hear about your career path, and they want to do similar type things, what is your advice to new people getting into the field? Well, I think some of them will be just to reinforce things that we've already talked about. I mean, one is the networking component. And I actually have found Twitter to be a really good spot for that. I mean, it's been really good for barbecue. <laughs> I was just asking you not too long ago about your thermometer. Yeah. Um, so I think using social media, I was on Twitter for many, many years, but I didn't actually become active on Twitter until I was an analyst. So I found it to be a great way, despite all of the bad, and there's lots of bad in our space and lots of drama in our space. But I think social media can be a tool to both get awareness and build up your relationships, even your brand, if you want to go that route. So I think I think the networking is, is a key component. Going to the local events in your area. So for example, we have an Intel meetup group here in Dallas, in DFW, um, good place to go. The B-Sides conferences are good places to go. So I really think the networking component is really, really key. I think uh, working on open source projects, writing some code and putting it up on GitHub for others to use, um, I think those are those are good ways to kind of build that network, get some experience, you know, and use it could it may not help you in the near term. It could help you 10 down 10 years down the road. So I think those would be my suggestions on, uh, you know, good ways to advance your career, no matter what stage of your career you're at. Fantastic advice. Now, you have a couple of events coming up. I know the SANS uh, uh, CTI Summit is one of them. I'll also be there with you. But go ahead and tell me about those events. Yeah, one of them. Um, in, is the last week in Austin, and actually I will be driving to Taylor, Texas on the way to Austin to get barbecued there, so I'll have a little barbecue tourism myself, but <laughs> it's the uh, MISTI Threat Intelligence Summit, so it's the last week of November in Austin, November 29th and 30th. I'm actually going to be doing a talk on structured analytic techniques there, um, so if you're in the Texas area or if you're flying in for it, look for me there. And then, of course, we've already mentioned the SANS Threat Intelligence Summit. It'll be year six for that event. That's uh, January 29th and 30th in Beth Bethesda, Maryland. Um, and that we're actually working on the keynote stuff right now. And it's a really good lineup. And then the final one is a pretty exciting one is after many years of my uh, of friends and um, contacts in Europe wanting to have a threat intelligence summit there, uh, SANS is doing the first European based in London threat intelligence summit. Uh, called Cyber Threat Summit 2018, February 27th and 28th. Wonderful. Well, Rick, we appreciate your time. Your perspective, I think, is going to be very valuable. Uh, I know I learned a lot as well. So uh, I appreciate it. I'm always glad to talk barbecue with you for sure. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Next time I'm in Texas or next time you're in Georgia, we're going to have to uh, have to find some. Uh, I would look forward to that.
Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, Rick. Take care. That'll do it for this episode, folks. Do me a couple of favors. First, go out and thank Rick for coming on the show today. You can find him on Twitter at Rick H. Holland. I'm sure he'd really appreciate that. Of course, I always love to hear your feedback too. You can find me at Chris Sanders 88 Also, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. Use whatever podcasting app is your app of choice and give us five stars or like us or whatever you can do to show us some love. That always helps us out as well. Uh, looking forward to talking to you again here in a couple weeks. We have several other really unique and uh, interesting guests lined up for the, uh, the rest of the season. So I'll look forward to talking to y'all then. I appreciate y'all. And as always, it's a beautiful day to catch bad guys.